Good morning, church. Um, before we jump into Genesis, would you pull out your bulletin? I just want to point your attention toward something on the back. On the back of your bulletin, you'll notice there's uh, two columns. The one on the left has upcoming, and those are things that are? Good job. Upcoming. Uh, there's one of them to, to draw your attention to. About um, two-thirds of the way down, there is an event coming up called Brave in Babylon. Um, our church, one of the relationships we have is with a group of churches that have banded together to do uh, particular things. One of them is to every other year to put on a conference for churches in Arizona. And uh, this is that every other year coming around. Um, Brave in Babylon is going to be uh, two days on the topic of uh, how to, in a society that is becoming more and more uh, hostile to Christianity, how do we live in such a way that we're neither um, angry and grumpy about that, but we're also not withdrawing and hiding? How do we live in the world, but not be of the world? Um, Dr. Greg Gilbert will be here. He is uh, the pastor of a church in, as they say locally, Kentucky, and Uh, He also is the author, a lot of you have read the book, um, What is the Gospel? This is the first book we read in Disciple Makers, that little black one. He's the author of that book. So excellent scholar will be here with us that weekend. The reason we're bringing it up today is just because the price increases uh, by the weekend. So if that's something you're interested in, you can look up that URL and um, I'll be going. We'd love to sit with you if you go. So it should be a great time together. If there are any parents who want your children to go to age-specific teaching, that's offered now up through fifth grade. Uh, Of course, fine to have them stay as well. Everybody else, would you turn with me to um, Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you should be able to find a blue one in front of you, and we're on page 1 in that Bible, page 1. We are uh, working our way through Genesis in our beginnings series. And what we've seen so far is that God created the cosmos in six days and then rested on the seventh. Today, as we reach into the body of chapter two, we'll find what is essentially an extended version of the sixth day, an extended version of the sixth day. Following another theologian's lead, Von Roberts defines the kingdom of God uh, like this. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. As I read this chapter, would you think about each one of the pieces of that clause and watch for them, watch for those elements as we read. I'll start in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pisan, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stones are there. The name of the second one is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And all of us said, ah, now I get it. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh to the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Before sin entered humanity, here in chapter 2, we find before that, before sin, before the fracturing of our relationships with God and with each other, this was a wonderful, blissful world. A world very different than the one you and I woke up at and in today. What made it wonderful is it was God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's what made it good. There was no resisting of God, no distrusting of his word, no rejecting him, no distance from him whatsoever. No guilt, pride, or shame internally for people. And no thorns and thistles to deal with external to people. None of the difficulties you and I face every day were known to that first couple. This God, that place, and those people will be what we 
consider this morning. And at the great risk of being mocked for weeks for it, I've decided to organize this sermon by five Ps. Now you could consider these the Eden Ps, so that if you want to remember it, then you can remember eating peas. I can keep going. We're going to think this morning about some preliminary considerations that have to be in our minds if we're going to make sense of this passage. And then we'll look at the first person, the place, the presence, and his partner. So first, some preliminary considerations. There's two things I think we've got to keep in mind. Number one, in this sermon, I'm going to attempt to provide a faithful overview of what the passage says. There is so much here, this will not be exhaustive. And so my hope for you is that this would pique your interest, and later today or later this week, you would roll up your sleeves, and if possible, with other believers, or with some non-believers even, roll up your sleeves and study it further. Look at the other passages in the Bible that quote this passage or allude, it, allude to it. Spend time really carefully considering more that's in it than we can get to today. And if you have a question about something that I don't get to, no, I'm very happy to talk with you about it afterwards. One other preliminary matter we need to tackle is that at least for some of you, you may feel like there's an elephant in the room. And so I just want to acknowledge the element, elephant and speak to him for a minute. On first reading, doesn't it seem like this chapter doesn't go very well with the preceding one? I mean, if you were to just sit down and start in Genesis 1.1, and read all the way through to the end of Genesis 2, it might leave you asking, why did I need that other chapter? Why include a second creation story? Perhaps you've even heard the theory that Genesis 1 was written by one person, Genesis 2 was written by another person, and then some third person took and collected them, smashed them together, not realizing that these Stories are contradictory. Well, we need not resort to such arrogant conclusions because embedded in that hypothesis is the theory that we are smart and that those back then were stupid. C.S. Lewis called that chronological snobbery of which we do all the time. It'd be wise for us not to do it to our Bibles. I would submit to you that if we read these texts slowly and we take the passage on its own terms, then we'll find there's no problem at all. Because you could think of Genesis 1 as sort of the Google Earth view of the creation of the cosmos way out in space, looking down, seeing an overview. Whereas Genesis 2 is more of the Google street view, the zoomed in, what one day looks like in its particular details. Another way to say it, chapter 1 is a wide-angle lens. 
Chapter two, we're zooming in on day six and the creation of people. Now, how do we know that? Well, the, the indicator to us is rather easy to miss, but it's right there in the beginning. Verse four, it starts with this phrase, these are the generations. That sounds like blah, 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 but it's actually very important. This is the first time that phrase is used, and it'll be used 10 more times in the book of Genesis. It is the structural backbone of the book. You might think of it like your spine. It's what's holding everything together. Every time that phrase is used, then a new section of material is introduced in which what is introduced, what's coming, is an expansion of something that came before it. So you could think of it as saying, God bless you. Timing was impeccable. There's, there's something we want to say. Now, let me reach in there and give you an account, a more detailed account of something we just referenced. You see, these are not rival creation stories. This section of Genesis simply records a more detailed account of the creation of people. God's word is trustworthy. It's good. There are no mistakes. We simply need to read it on its terms. Now let's think about the person God created. Two weeks ago, we uh, encountered the, the humbling reality that we are made male and female in God's image. That means we're in his likeness, that there are things about him in who we are and in what we do that represent something of who God is. In verse 7, we learn how that first occurred. It says in verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Church, God made the first person in two steps. First, like an expert potter, God took from the dust, formed, if you will, knowledgeable clay into a person. This was not happenstance or coincidence. It didn't just happen. People exist because God formed Adam with great intentionality. And we all are his ancestors. We came from the dust, ultimately, as part of God's creation. That's the first piece of who we are. The second is that in a stunningly personal manner, God then took this person that he had formed and he breathed the breath of life into him. This is a phrase that's used in the Bible only of the creation of people. No planet, no tree, no star, no animal received anywhere near that kind of personal, intentional, life-giving, creative moment. Why? Well, because the only thing, the only created thing you will ever meet that's 
made in the image of God is another person. That's it. Only people get their life, their breath from God. I wonder if we held those two truths together, that we are dust and that we have the breath of life. I wonder what would happen if those were in the forefront of our minds all the time. Think about how differently we would think about ourselves and others. The prideful would be brought low. The lowly would be lifted up. Of all the places on earth where that ought to be happening, shouldn't it be here? Among the people of God? Where we know where we've come from and where we're going? And yet we know each one of us has our life, our breath, because of God. You see, as human beings, we are a combination of body, material, and soul, immaterial. The two are not at odds with one another. Rather, they are intricately woven together. As those who receive breath from God, we bear His resemblance. And we have a unique capacity among creation to relate to God and to exercise moral responsibility. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're just beginning to consider Christianity, perhaps hearing these ideas for the very first time, recognize that across the Bible what you're going to find is that God brings people appropriately low. And God lifts believers gloriously up. God brings low because we are dust, and to dust we will return. That is, we sin. We'll learn next week that humanity has not obeyed the commands of Genesis 1 and 2 rightly. And because of that, humanity has fallen, and death hangs over each one of us. Yet Jesus himself became low. He left heaven, came to earth, added a body, lived the life we were meant to live, died the death we deserve to die, rose again so that new life could be given to everyone who trusts in him. The message of Christianity is not Lift yourself up so that God will notice you, but rather bring yourself low so that in Christ you can be lifted up. This is the first person of Genesis 2. His name was Adam and the head of all humanity. He functions, you see, as our representative. Because he was the first, what he did, we did. We are in him by virtue of being his descendants. Now consider with me our next P, the place. The passage concentrates on a particular region of the world, not the entire earth. That's why it's no problem that in chapter 1 we have the creation of vegetation and then people. 
while in chapter 2 we have the creation of people and then vegetation. Why is that? Well, it's because it's talking about a particular place on earth. You'll see the word land used over and over and over, not translated as earth. Verse 7 in particular describes God forming Adam like a potter, while in verse 8 he magically changes careers and becomes a master gardener. God planting a garden in a place referred to simply as Eden. Now, as you can imagine, endless debates exist about where Eden was. While it was an actual historical spot, a precise location, where that was exactly remains a mystery to us. Two of the four rivers in verses 10 to 14 are now unknown to us. A lot of attempts have been made to identify them with existing rivers. They don't seem satisfactory to me. Probably the best we can say is that wherever Moses was and wherever the Israelites were, as this was written and then read to them, they were to the west of wherever Eden was because the passage says it was in the east. Likely somewhere in Mesopotamia. At any rate, you can geek out and argue and look that up all you want, but probably we won't know until we are with the Lord face to face. But at any rate, this garden was magnificent. Some sort of spring underneath was welling up as God provided beautiful trees, vegetation, food, and as we'll discuss in a minute, his presence to enjoy. Verses 10 to 14, the ones that are the most weird in the passage, make clear that this was a place of abundance. And several of those elements in that section, that paragraph, come up later in the biblical story. For example, some of the stones were the stones, the gems that the high priest wore. Elements of the temple and tabernacle are pre-anticipated here. Te teeming with life, the man had meaningful work to do in this garden paradise. Like God, in Genesis 1, named aspects of his creation. He called the light day, for example. Here in chapter 2, the man is tasked with naming the animals. And I think we see some uh, remote memory of that. I mean, when you see a hippopotamus, you're like, hippopotamus? But when you see a little furry thing, you're just like, cat? <laughs> Teeming with life, this garden was. The man was tasked by naming the animals to be God's representative, to rule over creation as God's stand-in. In so doing, he was beginning to act as God's representative, obeying what Genesis 1 said, to fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. That's what he's doing. And part of this man's job description is, is there in verse 15, 
It's an important enough verse. I'd love to read it again. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. If you write in your Bibles, you might even circle these words. To work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Sometimes people imagine the Garden of Eden to be sort of a all-inclusive, magical vacation paradise in which you just sat back in a lounge chair with your pina coladas and did nothing. That's not actually the Garden of Eden. It wasn't that. The man, we're told, was to work the garden and to keep the garden. What does that mean? It means he was to tend to it, to, to cultivate it, to take what was wild and help it become settled, to protect it, and then eventually to even extend it. This was to be the task that filled his day. This was to be his, his life, what he was about, to work it, and keep it. And yet, those two terms, work it and keep it, point to things beyond even the garden. You see, those words get picked up and used in other ways. The Hebrew word for translated as work is used throughout the Old Testament in a spiritual sense of us serving God. We are to serve God. And so as Adam worked it and kept it, he was not merely helping a physical place flourish, but he was serving his God. When we do our work wholeheartedly as for the Lord, we're doing them, we're doing it for God. Additionally, that Hebrew word translated from as work comes up lots and lots and lots of times as a reference to what the priests were to do in the tabernacle and then the temple. They were to work in it and they were to also keep it. Keep it is a word that is used in the Old Testament to refer to us, the people of God, obeying God, meaning keep God's laws. It was also a word used for the priest to protect or to keep the tabernacle and the temple. The point, you ask? Well, the man was placed in a real garden in a region known as Eden. That's not a metaphor or an allegory. And yet this place wasn't merely a garden. It was also a meeting place with God, where both man and, as we'll see in a few minutes, woman could serve God by working and keeping, by being fruitful and multiplying, by filling the earth and subduing. In ruling over creation, they would be serving God himself. And by obeying or keeping God's commandments, they would remain in the blessings of God and in the presence of God, worshiping him, serving him, 
enjoying him. The garden, you see, theologians widely regard as the first temple, the first meeting place with God. Now, do you remember Von Roberts' phrase? God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. This is the world as God made it. And it was a wonderful world. Friends, our lives are, are too filled with responsibilities, with work. And work did not come to us as a result of the fall. Work became more difficult and painful and frustrating as a result of the fall. But to take the responsibilities that are given to us relative to our spheres of influence and our stations in life and to work them in a diligent way is a sign of godliness, is a indicator of living as God was intended. Work is good, not bad. Productivity is good, not bad. And the ratio we talked about last week is God worked six and rested one. And in some way, shape, or form, we should expect that our lives will be mostly filled as adults with productive forms of responsibilities. These are not things to complain about, but rather responsibilities and joys to embrace. To work and to keep is a good thing. To fight against that created design is to frustrate the very reason why we are here. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That brings us to presence. Of course, the question is, would, would they stay there? Would Adam and Eve remain in God's presence under God's blessing obeying God's good commands? Well, chapter two doesn't answer that question. Come back next week where we'll consider the answer. For now we must wait. Nevertheless, I do think it's important that we take into consideration this week that we, we encounter in Genesis two the opportunity for obedience or disobedience. The choice was left to Adam and Eve. Will you obey or will you disobey? Verse nine tells us there were two especially significant trees. The, one of them is called the tree of life. The other is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These trees are indicators that God and the man and the woman were in a relationship marked by or designated as a covenant. God gave them requirements that they were to meet. What were they? Well, obey those commands in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, work it and keep it. 
And then specifically, God told him, you can eat from every tree except one. These were the requirements of the covenant. A covenant is a promise made by one to another in which there are certain conditions that must be met, and then there are blessings if those conditions are met, consequences if they are not. Covenants are one of the primary key helpful ways to read through your Bible and watch for them. And although the word covenant is not here, all the evidences of one certainly are present. God promised obedience would result in continued life and blessing. That's symbolized in this tree of life. While disobedience would cause the curse, death, that's symbolized in this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, these were real trees, and yet it's not as though there were some kind of magical fruit on them, like some sort of video game in which if you eat the wrong tree, you lose a life, and if you eat the right one, you get a superpower. It's not, it's not that. Whatever fruit was on these trees, it's merely a test. Would Adam and Eve obey, or would they disobey? This first couple was born innocent, and they entered a covenant with God. As morally responsible people, the terms of the covenant were theirs, and the choice was theirs. Obey, leading to more and more and more life with God. Disobey, and you will find death. Now, the word death in the Bible can be confusing to us. The most simple way to think about it is separation. The word death refers to separation. It's the separation of a relationship with God. The separation, one day, of your body and your soul. Death always refers to some sort of separation. These trees, again, didn't have magical properties, but rather they were the signs of the covenant. Would the man and the woman choose blessing or would they try up moral autonomy? Would they believe God or would they disbelieve God? Now, why the language, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? Friends, there's some debate about this, but I, I think what that's referring to is not that by eating of that tree, Adam and Eve would become aware that there is both good and bad. That doesn't make sense. They were aware there was a tree that they weren't to eat and that it was bad. So they had to have some awareness of evil or badness. Instead, I think it's referring to the experience of. They would come personally to know good and evil. One commentator I read this week helped me a lot. He said, what is forbidden to the man is the power to decide for himself what is 
in his best interests and what is not. This is a decision God has not delegated. Man has indeed become a God whenever he makes his own self the center, the springboard, the only frame of reference for moral guidelines. When man attempts to act autonomously, he is indeed attempting to be godlike. What he means is, Adam and Eve had the option. Remain as created beings under the blessings of their creator. Or make up this idea that they could somehow function themselves autonomous from God. Is there a better description for our day? Everywhere we go, we are told, you do you. And all that we're doing every time we say that is, hey, there's a tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to eat of that is disastrous. God had done everything for this couple. Every need was met. And they were with God, who often came and visited them. Now, one powerful picture of that is easy to miss. But if you read carefully, you'll find that in Genesis chapter 1, God is always referred to in the same way. In fact, some 35 times the word God is used. God is the name Elohim. That name for God refers to his creating power, that God is creator, that he's all-powerful, that he's mighty, more powerful than we can even comprehend. And yet, when we turn to chapter 2, notice the passage says over and over and over again, Lord God, Lord God, Lord is Yahweh, the covenant name for God, the tender, personal, gracious, intimate, pursuer. When God made everything, he wanted us to know he's powerful. When you made people, he wanted us to know he's powerful, he's personal, that he's involved. He's loving. Isn't that cool? Let's think about the final P, definitely last but not least. Partner. As Adam was naming the animals, he naturally noticed they all seem to have a corresponding partner. But I don't. If you sat and read Genesis 1 and 2 in one sitting, then probably the thing that would leap off the page is verse 18. Because as God had made everything at the end of each day, he said, this is good, this is good, this is good. And here for the first time, we hear it's not good. This man needed someone like him, someone to share his oneness someone 
who fit, yet who was also different. How else would the image of God spread? How else would the man relate to another person as an image bearer? How else would they be fruitful and multiply, filling the earth and subduing it? It is in that sense that the passage is saying it's not good for the man to be alone. Beloved, understand this passage is not about loneliness, nor is it prescribing marriage for everyone. The rest of the Bible makes that clear. This is not speaking to the modern widow, the modern single adult, the modern college student, and saying, each one of you, if you're not married, your life is not good. That's not what this is saying. If you have been taught that and this passage has been held over you as a way to try to get you hitched with someone. Whoever told you that might have been well-intended, but they were wrong. It wasn't good that Adam was alone because there couldn't be the spread of the human race without a corresponding partner. This passage is explaining why we are male and female. I want to be careful with the audience, but there's a reason male and female fit together the way they do. It was by divine design. This is not saying anything at all about your life if you are not married as being not good. This is why the passage goes from the creation of Eve, generally, I mean specifically, the passage goes from the creation of Eve specifically to, in the very last verse, the description of the marriage covenant generally. The topic here is male and female, why are there two sexes, and what is marriage? Some hearing me this morning are mourning the loss of a spouse. Some hearing me are still recovering from the pain of a divorce. Some, in fact many in this church, want to be married, but that hasn't happened yet. Don't misunderstand Genesis 2 to be saying you are deficient, alone, or inferior if you're not married. Those things simply are not true. This is the creation of man and woman, of male and female, whom God created to fit together in order to work and obey the commandment of chapters one and two. God gave Adam an, an epic nap. And then when he awoke, he was ecstatic. He said, this at last. The woman God formed from the rib was to be a complement to him. Wives, the passage even uses the word helper. Now, before you take offense at that, it'd be good for you to know that 
God is often described as Israel's helper in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus said, I've got to go because I'm going to send another helper, which means Jesus referred to himself as a helper and the Holy Spirit is a helper. To be a helper is to be one in a position of strength, to have things to offer that the man doesn't have, to round out the image of God. Eve was created and placed in a marriage covenant along with Adam. Her differences would enable the fulfillment of God's commands. When Adam saw her, he was ecstatic. He was thrilled. He loved her at first sight. Husbands, do you delight in your wife like Adam did in his? When she enters the door at home and you're already there, do you proclaim in ecstatic joy this at last? Or do you sit on your rear end and not even acknowledge her existence? Husbands, that woman is a gift to you. She is one to be treasured and loved and led like Jesus does his church. Get your hiney off the couch. <laughs> now we don't have time. I have one more minute. We don't have time to explore this further, but I'd be remiss if I didn't. I would be disobedient if I didn't point this out. Genesis 1 and 2 rule in all sorts of things. They also rule out things that are quite common in our world. Genesis 2 rules out polygamy. Genesis 2 rules out permanent or short-term living together as though it's like marriage when you don't have the intention of marriage. Genesis 2 rules out taking the, the gift of sex to marriage, divorcing it from the covenant, and then just sleeping with whomever you want. Genesis 2 rules out no fault no reason for, in terms of biblical exclusions, divorce. And I in no way, shape, or form mean to be combative, rude, or stuffy and old-fashioned. But friends, Genesis 2 rules out transgenderism, bisexuality, homosexual marriage, and lesbian marriage, to take any of those paths is to choose to go and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil over and over and over and over. 
and in so doing causes your soul to rot from the inside out. May we be people who live different, not because we're better, but we've come to see just how bad we are. You see, the way the story ultimately ends is Jesus came as a second Adam. Jesus came and did everything that we're meant to do, what this first couple was supposed to do. He obeyed. And therefore, he could die a substitutionary death in our place, rise again in victory. And in him now, there is a whole new humanity being formed, one in which there is forgiveness no matter the sin. And there is family, no matter the fault. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God's good recreation. Will you pray with me? Father, we've talked about much today. Would you in your mercies now take your word and do what only the Holy Spirit can do, and that is take something proclaimed before a very diverse people and then apply it to each one of us personally. Where we need to be encouraged, please encourage us. Where we need to be rebuked, please rebuke us. Where our minds need to be reshaped, please reform us. Where our affections need to be redirected, please redirect us. Thank you that you not only created us, but you are recreating us. And for this grace, we praise you and thank you. And all God's people said, amen.